This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Our next speaker is Carly Demolopoulos. Dr. Demolopoulos is a clinical neuropsychologist and developmental neuroscientist with expertise in multimodal neuroimaging, particularly magnetoencephalography, MEG. She's an assistant professor at UCSF in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the Department of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging. Her research focuses on associations between sensory motor function and the clinical presentation of the autism spectrum and neurodevelopmental conditions. She has over 20 years of experience working with children with autism and other developmental disabilities in assessment, home-based treatment, and educational settings. Welcome, Dr. Demolopoulos. So I'm very excited to talk to you today about some work we've been doing in my lab uh, that's focused on sensory motor control and um, speech impairment as well as communication more broadly as it applies to neurodevelopmental disorders. Before I begin, I want to disclose that I do serve on the Scientific Advisory Board and own share in modality, um, stock shares in Modality AI, which is a technology company um, that is hosting a task that I developed that we're going, I'm going to be talking to you about later on in the presentation. Um, so the objectives for this talk are to demonstrate to you how differences in sensory processing and sensory motor control could have a cascade effect on development of clinical symptoms in autism. And the clinical symptoms I'm referring to and I'm gonna focus on for this talk are both verbal and nonverbal communication. So we're going to look at things like speech and language as well as uh, control of voice and affect or um, the outward production of uh, the outward communication of emotion. And so um, the, the goal of all of this mechanistic work that I'm going to talk to you about is of course, to identify future directions for novel approaches to treatment. And so I'm going to bring back around um, how all of these things we're doing can in a concrete way potentially result in a new treatment um, in a symptom area that has received uh, not nearly enough attention um, as it should have uh, over all of these years. So just to orient everyone uh, to what we're talking about here, um, about half of people with neurodevelopmental disorders have a motor speech disorder. And that is something that is distinct from a cognitive impairment or an inability to comprehend. And I think that's something that gets conflated far too often. If you have a patient who cannot speak, it doesn't mean they don't understand what you're saying. And it doesn't mean they don't have cognitive abilities that they're not able to demonstrate to you in this moment because of their motor speech impairment. Um, and so underestimating someone based on their ability to speak or not, or their ability to speak quickly or fluently can have really detrimental impacts, especially um, for this group of us who are treatment providers who have the opportunity to put someone on the right course and get them 
access to the best possible treatments that fit their individual needs. And so um, one thing that's incredibly important is to understand that assessment of this population requires specialized expertise. Um, all of our clinical standardized assessment tools were developed for a speaking population. And when we apply those tools to people who are unable to use verbal speech for their communication, they are no longer valid. And that's not to say we shouldn't use standardized testing in this population. And getting test scores can be important for things like access to service. Those of us who are treatment providers know this. We have to demonstrate that a person needs services and these scores can be helpful in that. But the scores don't tell the whole story. And um, they can be misinterpreted if they're not used uh, appropriately. And in conjunction with good qualitative information that's gained from the assessment. And so um, it's really important to pay attention, not just to what the final result is, but what a person is demonstrating to you about their abilities uh, when asking, when doing an assessment, and also what that what that means in terms of interpreting all of the other information you're getting. So it's a very holistic approach to assessment um, and there's not a lot of uh, training dedicated to this. And so it's really important to make sure you're working with experts who know what they're doing in serving this population so that um, we're not uh, falling into the trap of uh, misrepresenting someone's abilities based on our limitations and ability to assess those abilities. Um, and so uh, what we have to offer right now for people with motor speech disorders or other communication impairment um, are speech and language therapies, which are largely focused on working around barriers to communication. Um, there aren't any treatments that target any neurobiology or other underlying pathology that is causing the difficulty with communication. And that is because we don't have a good understanding of those barriers. Um, and so it's important that we move past this workaround, which don't get me wrong, with, without access to any means of communication versus having some access to communication can be a huge difference and it's important, but it's not enough. You can see um, if you were on for the last talk, uh, Pancho described how the initial communication strategies he was offered were not meeting his needs. And I thank you for sharing that because this is a story shared by many people who have to use assistive and augmentative technologies for communication. Um, another uh, low-tech example is this picture in the background here using picture symbols or picture exchange communication system uh, to communicate, which um, requires uh, motor ability to select and use these picture symbols um, and also is limiting in that you only have access to say what are on uh, the picture symbols available to you and with you at the moment. And so there are limitations to all of these things. And um, while some is better than nothing, we have to do better. And in order to do better, we have to start dedicating efforts to understanding the barriers so that we can form some targeted treatments that target those barriers. And so I'm going to focus on uh, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, 
as a neurodevelopmental disorder that has a high prevalence, it's very common. And um, it's also very common in this population to have a verbal communication impairment. Um, with about one quarter of people with autism having little to no speech. And so much of my work has focused on uh, communication and um, associated symptoms that may impact communication in this population. And so um, one of the big ticket items that I think has a major impact in a far reaching way for people with autism are differences in sensory processing. Um, this has been recognized as a core diagnostic feature because it is so prevalent. Almost everyone with autism has had or currently has, or at some point in their life had um, differences in sensory processing that had a, um, a varying degrees of impact on their day-to-day -day function and manifest in different ways uh, and across different sensory modalities. But there is some evidence pointing to auditory and tactile differences being the most affected of the sensory domains. And so I'm going to present some work that's focused on auditory and tactile processing. So in this first study that I'm showing to you here, we recruited children with autism and children who had sensory processing dysfunction who did not have autism, but were in treatment with occupational therapy to address their sensory needs. Um, and then we also recruited children who didn't have any diagnoses. And we gave them a battery of auditory processing tasks, tactile processing tasks, and then we asked their parents to complete a questionnaire about their sensory processing. And so when we looked at how these three groups performed on all of those measures, we can see our two clinical groups impacted by sensory dysfunction looked very similar uh, and different from our control group on all of the parent report measures as well as the tactile processing measure. But it was only auditory processing that distinguished these two clinical groups. So there was something unique to the autism group impacting auditory processing. And so we thought to study a little more what's going on in the brain with auditory and tactile processing for children with autism. And uh, to do this, we use a technology called magnetoencephalography or MEG. Um, this is a tool that is really ideally, ideally suited for measuring uh, sensory processing because it silently acquires its data. Um, and because it's also non-invasive for our participants who may be uncomfortable having EEG leads glued to their head or loud scanner noise from an fMRI scanner. This is a silently acquired non-invasive way of collecting data. You can see the participant's head is resting inside a helmet. The face is open so they can see around the room. We don't get that effect of claustrophobia like in an MRI scanner. And all of the sensor array is within this helmet surrounding the head, but nothing is making skin contact or requiring the discomfort of those EEG leads to, to record brain activity. So this MEG system records the same uh, neural activity that an EEG would record. It records brain activity um, by measuring magnetic fields produced by that electric activity of firing neurons. 
So um, it's a really uh, beneficial technology in that we can get this dense coverage of sensor space that allows us to find the location of the brain activity very precisely. Um, and we can record that activity in real time and have data on the order of milliseconds, limited only by the sampling rate of your data. So we can record real-time rapid brain activity with a very good localization of where that activity is coming from uh, without uh, any discomfort to the participant. We also get improved localization over EEG because we don't have the smearing effect of requiring skin conductance in that way. Magnetic fields travel right through tissue um, and aren't uh, hindered by skin and skull and uh, other fluids that are in between the source of the brain activity and the sensor. So this methodology is a really excellent technique for working with the autism population when you need to measure um, rapid brain processes with good uh, ability to identify where and when they're happening. And so we use that technology to measure brain response to basic sounds and brain response to um, basic tactile stimulation. So a balloon diaphragm, diaphragm on the left ring finger, uh, just a tiny inflation creating a little sensation of a finger tap. Um, and we were able to record those brain responses using the MEG scanner and localize them to their source of activity. And we get for our auditory stimuli, a nice bilateral um, auditory response and, and auditory cortex uh, where these red voxels are indicated. And then for our tactile stimulation, we get the right somatosensory activation, um, which is what we would expect because we've stimulated the left finger. Um, and so to the left of these brains, you see the time course of the brain activity. We see the changes in activation over the course of 400 or so milliseconds here. So this is a very rapid process. And so the auditory response is a more complex response with multiple response components and lots of peaks. Uh, these three major peaks being the most studied um, in terms of the auditory response here. And then the somatosensory response you can see is a much simpler response, just one large peak at around um, a little before 100 milliseconds. And so what we did was we measured all of these responses in all of our participants, and we compared the latency or the timing of their responses across our groups. And we found something very similar to what we found in our behavioral data. Whereas the autism group showed delays in both tactile and left auditory response, they only looked different from the sensory processing dysfunction group in the auditory response right here. The autism group is differentiated from both groups, once again, in auditory processing. And so we wondered whether there was a general a uh, delay in sensory processing, a generalized delay that might be um, attributing this in our autism group. And so we ran uh, correlations between the latency in the somatosensory response and the auditory response. And in fact, you can see there's no relationship. So you may have a delay in somatosensory response, you may have a delay in auditory response, but they're independent of one another largely. And so, 
once again, we wondered, okay, the auditory response is what's distinguishing our autism group, once again, from kids who have sensory processing dysfunction who don't have autism. And one of the other things that distinguishes those groups by definition is that the kids in the sensory processing dysfunction group should not be having an impairment in communication. They don't have autism, they only have this sensory processing dysfunction. And so I wanna to talk to you now about how auditory processing may be impacting communication in autism. And so taking those latencies we saw in the last slide and correlating them with verbal abilities on the WISC, which is a measure of verbal IQ, um, the verbal comprehension index, and the DSTP acoustic linguistic index, which is a test that measures uh, phonological manipulation. Um, we see a strong correlation in the solid line here for the autism group between verbal abilities and uh, auditory response latency. The people who had scored lower on these measures, who had uh, poor performance on these measures of verbal abilities, had a later brain response to auditory information. And that association between auditory response delays and language skills has been demonstrated in other studies as well. So it's a pretty well established finding that auditory latency delays are somehow associated with communication and autism. So we did another study to try to understand how that mechanism may be working. And what we hypothesized is these delays in the auditory response are impacting the ability of a person to process all of the rapid auditory information that's coming your way when you're speaking or when someone is speaking to you. Um, that information comes quickly. And if you can't keep up with processing it, that's going to impact your communication. So we designed a rapid pure tone processing task where two sounds are presented in rapid succession. And we used magne magnetoencephalography to measure brain response to those sounds. And what we found is that the children who had impaired rapid processing, who didn't show good response to that second tone of the two rapidly presented tones because of that response delay, those were the children who also had impaired phonological awareness and articulation on standardized testing. And these response, these rapid processing deficits were found in both hemispheres of the brain. It was a bilateral finding. What we didn't find was a direct relationship between rapid processing and language skills. Instead, what we found was that phonological awareness mediated the relationship between rapid processing and both receptive and expressive language. So the interpretation being inability to process basic auditory information, like just basic sound tones, impacts your ability to process phonological information needed for language. Um, and that impacts your language development in turn. And so if that interpretation were true, we would expect that rapid processing of speech sounds would have a direct relationship to language. And so, in fact, that is what we are finding in uh, some work that's currently in preparation now. Um, rapid processing of speech sounds was directly associated with, in the left hemisphere, with expressive language and speech articulation. 
And what's interesting about that is both of these measures are associated with speech production. And so we believe that the difficulty processing the sound of one's own speech due to these delays and latent response latency, this, this impaired rapid processing makes uh, understanding and processing the feedback of speech produced by the individual difficult and that's impacting expressive language and more specifically speech production. And so I wanna focus now on models of speech production, how any of us are able to talk at all and how that might be impacted in autism so we can understand now what is the barrier, the motor speech barrier in this population. And so if we were to boil speech down to a very simple sentence, speech is a motor act. That's what it is. And it happens to have a sensory consequence. And so um, motor impairment is a hot topic in autism right now. There have been a debate about whether we should be including motor impairment in diagnostic criteria, um, which you know is under debate, but regardless of where you stand on that issue, we all can agree there is a high prevalence of motor disturbance or motor differences in autism. Um, and we know that early uh, manual and oral motor skills have been shown to predict later speech fluency. So there is likely an impact of motor differences on development of speech production. And so what our basic scientists have told us um, and what they can, while everyone is working to, to define kind of the details, what all of these basic scientists, researchers in speech production can agree on is that models of, that speech is reliant on a combination of feed forward and feedback processes. And so I've borrowed from Simmons et al here, this nice simplified schematic of how that works. Um, if I'm going to speak, I have an idea of what it is I want to say, and I have an expectation of how it will sound when I say it. That's the sensory prediction of my motor commands for producing speech. I have an auditory prediction of what my speech will sound like. I go ahead and initiate my motor actions. The motor commands are executed, my articulators do their thing, and the sensory consequence is I feel all of the somatosensory input in my tongue moving, my lip movement. I feel the vibration in my throat from the, the speech production, but I also hear what I've said. And if what I hear does not match what I predicted to hear, if what I heard isn't what I intended to say, that triggers this auditory error signal that I can then use to correct my speech moving forward. And so, Sensory feedback, is particularly auditory feedback, is really important for maintaining the accuracy of our speech. Also, though, important for being able to speak efficiently is having this feed-forward system making a nice shortcut, a standard of comparison for me to compare that feedback to. If I didn't have this feed-forward prediction, I would have to process all of the individual sounds I've produced from my speech from the bottom up that would be incredibly inefficient and it would make speech potentially very, very effortful and difficult and maybe too difficult to use in any kind of functional way. So I might not even wanna bother working with speech as my means of communication. 
And this is what I was talking about earlier, where we need to pay attention to individual needs in terms of offering communication supports. Um, so this, this whole system is showing how we need this feed forward system and feedback system to work together in order to have a fluent uh, speech that is not uh, so effortful that it's going to be um, not functional. And so we fortunately have some tasks that we are able to use in order to measure feed forward and feedback control of speech. In this first task I'm gonna to talk to you about here, we are altering the auditory feedback of a person's speech in real time. So we ask our participants to wear a headset microphone and headphones where they'll hear their speech from the microphone in the headphones. And before the signal goes from microphone to headphones, we put it through a digital signal processor that allows us to alter the sound before it reaches the ear. And so what, what, the, what we're doing, we ask the participants to phonate. All they have to do is say, ah, and we ask them to hold that for 2.5 seconds. It's the duration of a visual cue. Um, and we ask them to do that many times. And during the course of their phonation, at a variable lag from the onset of their speech, we shift the pitch of their voice up or down by 100%. They, or, I'm sorry, 100 cents. They don't know when the shift is coming or what direction it will be, or even that it is coming. And it's a very subtle shift uh, that is not necessarily even consciously perceived, but it is something that we see a measurable vocal response to. And so when uh, your pitch is shifted up, you're likely to lower the pitch of your voice down in order to correct for that error. That's called a compensation response. Um, when we shift pitch down, you shift voice up in order to compensate. And so we measured the um, absolute compensation in response to these pitch shifts in children who had a 16P11.2 deletion. And so this group is, um, uh, accounts for about 1% of the autism population, um, but they are also a group that is um, very frequently impacted with speech impairment. So all of the kids in this group that we recruited had pretty substantial speech impairment. They had difficulty producing motor speech. And so we looked at their compensation response relative to controls. And what we found is that our deletion carriers in the solid line here had an exaggerated vocal adjustment to the perturbation. It's a much bigger compensation response than the controls in the dashed line here with error bars surrounding. So what we interpret this to mean is that potentially the deletion carriers are having an, a, a greater reliance on auditory feedback for controlling their speech. When we collect this data from kids who have autism of idiopathic origin, not associated with any particular genetic uh, difference, we find that the same pattern um, in our preliminary data here, and this is from a currently enrolling study. So this is, uh, this is new data that we are adding to every day. Um, our autism group is showing a greater response than the controls to these pitch perturbations. And so these, these kids are relying more on auditory feedback 
for their speech control than the neurotypical control group. Could this be because they have an inability to rely on their feed-forward control system? To find this out, we have a task that helps us measure feed-forward control. Um, and this task was actually by, pioneered by John Hood, who is a speech neuroscientist here at UCSF. And so he developed this wonderful task for us to get at feed-forward control. And this is a very similar ask for our participants. They're still in the same setup with a headset microphone and headphones and the digital signal processor. And this time we ask them to say the word bed and we alter the vowel sounds. So they hear something much closer to the word bad. And if you were to make a compensation response for that, if you were going to vocally adjust for that shift in vowel sound, you'd say something closer to bid. And so, this is different than our other task in that when we alter the vowel sounds, we do it in a very consistent and predictable way so that the participant can learn to anticipate this shift and preemptively change their speech motor plan to avoid the perceived speech error. And so for, for the first 20 trials, we don't alter the feedback. The, the child says bed, they hear bed. But after trial 20, we consistently shift that vowel sound E to sound more like an A. And what we find is that our controls in red are making, they learn very quickly to adjust their vocalization and say something closer to bid to make it sound more like bed in their headphones. Our uh, 16P11.2 deletion carriers in blue are not making that adjustment. They're either not learning from that consistent and predictable feedback error, or they're simply not changing their vocal program, their vocal motor program. We see this same pattern, again, in our currently enrolling autism study with our controls in red showing a greater adaptation response than our, our autism participants in blue. And so um, you'll notice as well, the gap between the two groups is much smaller for our autistic participants than it is for our deletion carriers. And that's exactly what we would expect to find because everyone in this group had speech impairment versus our autism group is very heterogeneous in, in all of their abilities. Um, it's a well representative sample of the autism population in that we have people with very good speech uh, and people who are, are, are not able to use much functional speech at all represented in this sample. And so um, we, we believe this could be an indicator that there are some people who, particularly those who are having trouble with speech or are unable to speak um, uh, or not able to functionally speak, who don't use feed-forward control effectively for speech production. Um, in order to, to know that for sure, we actually have a neural marker of feed-forward control. Um, we actually have this marker allows us to identify that a neural representation of that sensory prediction is present. And so uh, this uh, work is Naomi Court, uh, who was working with John Hood and Srinagar John. This is for her dissertation work in which they identified uh, using magnetoencephalography that the brain response to speech that a person produces 
is smaller in red here, then the brain responds to listening to that identical auditory information when we record that speech and play it back to them. And that is thought to reflect that the auditory cortex had less work to do because there was a sensory prediction of the auditory feedback that they would get because the, the speech was self-produced. That's an indicator that that feed forward prediction was made versus when you're not producing speech and just processing sound, even though it's the same sound, it's more work for the auditory cortex because there isn't that sensory representation as a shortcut. And likewise, we see the opposite. When we alter the, the auditory feedback of speech so that what you say is not what you expected to hear, we see a bigger response in auditory cortex. It's more work to process an unexpected sound that is self-produced. And so this speech perturbation response enhancement and this speaking-induced suppression response are both an indication that a feed-forward representation was made, that that sensory prediction was made. And so we're measuring self-produced speech in our autistic participants who are volunteering for our ongoing studies. Um, and so this data I'm showing you here is from unaltered self-produced speech. So this is where we would expect, like we see here, a, a suppression of the response because if the person is using internal representations for speech production, if their feed-forward system is doing what it should. And we are finding that our autistic group has increased activation in Broca's and left sensory motor cortex in response to their own speech, their own unaltered speech than our control group. And so this we believe to be indicative of a failure of the suppression of that response, a failure of the speaking induced suppression because there is no internal representation, no feed forward control system being active right now in producing speech. And what we find is that increased activation is also associated with the participants level of speech fluency. So the participants who had uh, less speech or less fluent speech had that increased activation suggesting that they're not using that shortcut, that feed forward shortcut in processing the sound of their own speech. They're doing it from the bottom up, which is the more effortful way. And so to bring this back to how that might impact uh, the clinical presentation of autism beyond just ability to speak or um, how uh, fluently one could speak, um, this could also impact control of other vocal and speech characteristics. So we've, we've highlighted how difficulty with processing rapid auditory information can make utilization of the auditory feedback of one's own speech more difficult. And so if you couldn't keep up with processing the sound of your own voice, might you slow down your speech so that you could process the sound of it? Or if you've ever had the, um, the experience where you get a delayed echo of your own voice while talking on a cell phone. It's incredibly disruptive. It's hard to talk when that happens. Um, and you may find yourself actually speaking very quickly and then abruptly halting your speech to allow that auditory feedback to clear before you start speaking again. Um, or maybe you would lower your volume of your speech to lower the volume of the auditory feedback, or maybe you would talk louder to try to talk over the disruptive auditory feedback. 
All of these unusual patterns of rate, rhythm, and volume are common in people with autism, and this could be why. We also know these differences in vocal characteristics persist even after other aspects of communication like verbal language improve. And these things matter, not only um, uh, in and of themselves, they matter because they are limiting to communication. So um, not just the words we say, but how we say those words communicate so much more beyond the semantic content of our speech. And so if you can't control those acoustic cues of your vocalization, you're going to be limited in your communication. And one form of limitation is emotional communication. Not just what we say, but how we say it has a really important role in conveying how we're feeling. And so there hasn't really been, um, there's no objective standardized clinical tool for quantifying affect production or the ability to communicate emotion through uh, acoustic cues of vocalization or facial expression. And so we have an experimental task um, that I developed in the lab in order to help us quantify that so that we can see, A, are we able to objectively characterize that and move beyond just clinician impression of these things? Um, and also that would allow us to see if any treatments or interventions we're doing move the bar on any of these things in, in an objective way. So are our treatments effectively targeting any of this core symptom of autism. Right now we have no standardized measures, no objective measures of core autism symptomatology. And so this tool may be able to help us with getting, giving that objective information in a way that we had been limited only by subjective clinician report in the past. And so what the task does is um, asking a person to produce an emotional vocalization and facial expression. And the task is designed for people with all levels of uh, vocal communication as long as you can basically phonate, much like our other tasks. So um, we have a monosyllabic production condition where the, the base, what a person needs to be able to do is say, oh. So, we ask them to say oh in a way that's happy, sad, angry, or fearful. Um, we also have a sentence length condition for those of our participants who can speak in sentence. And we also have a monosyllabic condition in which uh, an emotional vignette is also described to help give a little bit more of a picture of the emotion for those of our participants who have receptive language abilities to follow um, a, a paragraph length vignette. So um, we have it on the most uh, simple level all the way through more complex. And we're trying to establish what's the minimum necessary for good assessment of this. Um, so let me play an example of the monosyllabic expression condition for you. Use your face and voice to say, oh, in a way that seems happy. Oh. Thank you. So you can see my graduate student there um, interfacing with the virtual dialogue agent, uh, Tina, who is playing these prompts for her and recording her response and then moving her on to the next item. We also have a repetition condition for um, facial limitation and vocal limitation that allows us 
to measure whether a person is able through their sensory motor control to produce a facial expression or vocal expression that would be communicative of different emotions. And so that allows us to under use uh, sensory motor control as a covariate in understanding differences in uh, affect production. And so here's an example of that monosyllabic vocal imitation condition. Say, oh, like this. Oh. Oh. Thank you. And so the metrics we're getting from this task, from the audio and video recording, are um, related to acoustic qualities of speech that allow us to convey emotion, things uh, like spectral qualities like pitch, as well as things like timing, voice quality energy. And then the facial metrics are focused more on uh, position and movement of different features mapped out over here by these markers on the right um, of the, the mouth and eye and eyebrow areas. And so, uh, we collected a bunch of this data in uh, our participants with autism and our neurotypical control participants and ran a classification analysis um, in order to see what of these metrics might pred predict group membership. And what we found was that here in blue, the facial metrics performed worse than chance, which is represented by the red dashed line here. Um, and so the facial metrics did not distinguish groups at all, but what did classify groups quite well were the vocal metrics um, in orange. The green line is the combination of both facial and vocal metrics, which performs a little better, but it's largely driven by the vocal metrics. Um, and so we are really focusing on trying to understand how uh, we can take this task and um, use, compare it to now human judgment of these ratings and teach the computer to quantify affect production so that we can have an objective tool for assessing this. Um, and again, as I mentioned before, we would have tremendous clinical utility from that. Um, we're also evaluating reliability of doing this assessment in a home-based setting versus the laboratory, which is where we have been collecting the data because there is potential for remote access to this assessment which would really um, make it accessible to a lot more people if we can do this as a home-based tool. So I just wanna come back around and summarize how all of this mechanistic work can lead to actual improvement in um, treatments offered for, for people with autism who have speech impairment or uh, people um, with other associated conditions. And so this neurobiological understanding of the barriers to control of speech and voice allows us to develop interventions that target the source of those barriers. And so one potential way we can direct this toward treatment is to um, take those altered feedback paradigms I described to you and turn them towards therapeutic aims. We've already demonstrated that we can change speech using these tools. Can we use that to teach speech? Um, we also are measuring uh, excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmission in our participants in the speech motor cortex that would allow us to take a targeted pharmacological approach as an adjunct to speech therapy. If we can clear up the noise in speech motor cortex, does the speech therapist have the opportunity to take the person further in their therapy? And so um, these are kind of some future directions for our work. I just so want to, oh yes. 
Sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I, I think this is where we, if it's okay, I know there's um, a few more slides, but uh, we are running. It's just my last slide and then acknowledgement. So we're, we're wrapping up. I just wanted to mention if you had questions about the study, um, I've got some information here uh, uh, about participation and please reach out to me. I can always answer questions. And then here again, my wonderful um, uh, co-authors on the research I've showed you and mentors on the left, my uh, current collaborators in the center, and then my lab members who are doing a lot of the work I've shown you today. Um, thank you to all of them and our funding sources. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.